0: Blog Talk Radio. Fresh show, part of the Book Speak network. I'm your host Tori Gates, author of the books Live from the Cafe and A Moment in the Sun. Coming of age, a dysfunctional family dynamic, and a deep sense of connection to something and someone not at first understood. Aubrey Worthington struggles in a world not of her own making. Whispers in the Alders is the debut released by H. A. Callum, who joins us today. Welcome aboard. Hi, Tori. Thanks for having me. Well, we have to begin with the beginning. Uh, The opening lines to Whispers introduce us not only to your protagonist, Aubrey, but to a somewhat gritty world she's entering. Could you tell us about Aubrey and where she comes from and and what is she walking into?
1: Sure. Uh, So Aubrey is the daughter of uh, Stuart and Edith Worthington. Uh, Stuart is a vice president in the book for a manufacturing company. So what, what they do is they... Find these smaller, fading out uh, manufacturing plants, and he goes there, streamlines them, lays off the employees, and they they just buy these places up for the contracts, basically, like the government contracts. Uh, so when Aubrey comes into a town, she's not liked because you know word spreads that this company buys these places up and and mothballs them. So it, it's hard for her to make friends, and her her mother. Uh, is the stay-at-home stay mom, but again, they're they're wealthy, uh, so she doesn't have to interact in town as much, and they just kind of put her into school, and you know, see if she can survive on her own. It's not mm-hmm. a not a very warm family, not at all. Mm-hmm. So that's that's and, her entrance in the Alder
0: mm-hmm. Ferry. Mm-hmm. I try never to base a character myself on one person. Aubrey is has got some different shades to her. Uh where how did she come about for you?
1: Uh I would have to say, uh first and foremost, my imagination. Uh you know, you mm-hmm. you as a writer you you walk around, you listen to people, you pick up on things and you know, sometimes just a snippet of a conversation will give you an insight into a person and from there, you can develop yes. a character, and I saw in Aubrey when I first started writing the book, it was going to be two boys and i, I wanted a different dynamic and i, I and I found in aubrey that that dynamic that push and pull between her and Tommy that I think the readers mm-hmm. enjoy also so it's you know mm-hmm. she 's my creation, but you know the characters they all have our experiences in them too
0: mhm and uh for um, Alder Fairy struck me as this town that has seen better days and you created a real sense of, of the town, what it looked like, um, also the, the vibe that Aubrey felt when she got there. Um, in terms of the setting, now you live in Bucks County, which is just down to the east of me, but uh, where did you turn to regarding the setting, this town?
1: Alder Ferry, Yeah, I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania and anybody from Pennsylvania and just about any city in the U.S. knows Mm -hmm. of these small towns that that border up to the larger cities that have some manufacturing bases and that kind of fall out of favor as the economy changes. And so Mm -hmm. I looked around at, you know, some of the smaller towns. They're not small anymore, but that border Philadelphia, and you could say the same thing for maybe Scranton, Pittsburgh, anywhere up and down the East Coast, actually. Mm-hmm. And so you see these small towns that that once had a thriving economy after World War II, and then that just up and went away as, as time went on. And because the book takes place, it starts roughly in 1988 and it goes through to the early 2000s. So it follows uh, Aubrey and Tommy through their teen years and into early college years. And so I think it captures that piece of uh, the social and economic change that swept through our country after. World War II and really affected my generation generation X and you know and it still affects people today if you look at some of these towns they're just some of them are still struggling
0: yeah and it seems like the so many of the towns just didn't weren't able to change with the times or or for whatever for whatever reasons they're left like that and I think I think that's one thing that anyone from Pennsylvania, or really, like you say, anywhere in the country. If, you, if you've ever been to a town, lived in a town like that, or were near one, you would know what that was like. And I, I, I saw that growing up in New England to some extent, and I saw it in my travels as well. So, but it really it, it does fit. Um, in terms of the parental units, let's get back to them, Stuart and Edith. They stand out for, without giving too much away, for a real unlikability. And uh, I'm just wondering where those where they came from because they seem to have a certain extremism for each one, and it's in a different direction.
1: Sure, you know I I don't want to give away too much either, but I, oh, yeah, sure. I can give some background <laughs> on, on both. <laughs> and I got to apologize if if my voice goes in and out. I have a little bit of a cold, but uh, you might you might hear me sipping my tea in between. Uh, Understood. So. Stuart and Edith come from very different backgrounds. Edith is the daughter of uh, a very wealthy set of parents. Uh, Her dad was involved in manufacturing, and he sets up Stuart with a job after the two of them get married. I won't go into the details of their marriage because that gives away some stuff in the book. But it's more a marriage of convenience, I I guess you could say. So there's not a a lot of love there. But without uh, them being married, Stuart would have nothing and Edith would probably have been cast out from the family. There's some Mm -hmm. very deep religious undertones in the book that, you know, flow through American society, and I think their marriage captures
0: that. That is something I wish to ask you about uh, as we get a little further on here. And again, without trying to give away too much about the story, um, one of, I don't know if it's a metaphor, if that's the correct word for it, but the trees, when, when Aubrey is looking around her property and looking around this home, and those trees created something, and was that something that just, was it, was it something that stood out in the creation, in the process of this book? Was it, was it trees? Was it something that you saw? Because that just seems to draw Aubrey, and then it draws the reader in right behind her. Sure,
1: yeah, I wanted the uh the trees to have that that magic surrealism to them. uh Here you have you know a suburb that's starting to sprawl with the chain stores and the city just to its south, a river bordering the one side of the town, and then you have this one last place inside Alder Ferry that hasn't been developed. And much of that mm-hmm. is because it's, you know, it's it's boggy river bottom, and y- you can't build there, really. And it's it becomes a shelter for her and Tommy.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just want to use and that when, symbolism throughout the book. Mm-hmm. It is, there is that sort of, it it sort of reminded me of the Secret Garden a little bit. It was sort of like, this is our, this is a place that when Aubrey's walking through it, all of a sudden she sees Tommy, and it's like, oh. Who's that? And um, that that just seemed it seemed to be a, a place for them, uh, away from the almost madness that 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 when you're when you're and I remember my adolescence. It seemed like everything swirled around me in in a maddening way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and we've all been there. And I think that's that's the power of the book. Is anyone that's that's been there or is going through adolescence can really connect with. Their experience in the alder trees we, we all find those places where we can find shelter from life. It, it could be in nature, it could be a library, it could be a best friend's house. you know we, we have those places that we turn to that we feel safe in, and, and you know some people don't have that, but most of us can find that that one place where we can go and just uh, recover from life you know
0: mm-hmm. and that's what I'm sort the of. Right, it's sort of taking refuge in something, and, it's, uh, uh, but, and and yes, I think we all do take refuge in certain things at one time or another. Moving along to uh, Tommy's first appearance, and then you establish him fairly quickly. Um, is, where did Tommy come from? And, and as, I, as we say that, we see right away, you can feel right away something's not quite right with him, something's happened.
1: Yeah, Tommy is, yeah, he, you know, a lot of people say, you know, it's a cliche, wrong side of the tracks. His, uh, he comes from a very abusive home and he goes to the trees. That's his escape, the Alder trees. And he has his place there. And then, you know, we, we meet him because uh, when, when Aubrey's family moves into Alder Ferry, their house borders right against the the stand of alder trees. It's an old colonial, I based on some of the old homes you see along the Delaware river in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. some of the the grand old estates from the late 1700s. And, you know, it was abandoned for years and they move in and all of a sudden, you know, he's, he sees this and he sees someone his age and he takes an interest because, you know, he thinks why not, you know, and I don't know, you know, he, he probably knows who they are and he's like, well, no one else is going to talk to her. Maybe I can, because no one will mm-hmm. talk to him because of his his standing in the town.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is an interesting part too. Is that um, it's not it's um, one of uh, his relatives takes is, is is very active in the story, and um, that's it's sort of you were talking about how uh, the cities. Go down, and how the you know how uh, Stewart's job is to basically rub a company out, and here comes uh, well, it's it's basically one of Tommy's relatives who is a union leader, and it suddenly it that sort of ignites the old battles between businesses and unions. Only it's updated now.
1: Yeah, I tried to do that. I think that would give some good tension, and I I didn't want it to feel like dated either. I mean, it's it's very easy to you know pit the corporate. Giant against the union boss, and you know that that gets tired after a while. I think in Whispers in the Alders, that's it's painted in a more realistic fashion, where it shows you know the daily struggle, and sometimes both sides aren't right. Sometimes they both make very bad mistakes in how they deal with employees and and the towns that they represent. And I think many people that would live in those areas would would uh, would see that. You know that that mm-hmm. tension that's always there, and it's not like it's played often in the media. It's it's not black and
0: white. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that it's like different levels of tension that we talk about. And uh, it, there's the family dynamic. There's uh, from both families for both Aubrey's and Tommy's. And then we have this this business dynamic, which is completely different. Was that a conscious effort? Or did that come up, just come about in the process? that
1: was a conscious effort uh you know without without the the business side of it aubrey's family never would have appeared in alder ferry so that that's kind of what brought them into the story and then from there everything else developed the uh you know the families the characters everything came out of their arrival into alder ferry and with without the the business side of the story i don't like yeah you know, it's not really business but Without that that angle, they wouldn't be there. So mm-hmm. that that is what made the story happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, one other topic, we spoke of it very briefly a moment before. It's very much on people's minds right now and has been most of this year uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, the Catholic Church with uh, the abuse report that was just put out by the grand jury and the previous mm-hmm. one for, for the alternate Johnstown, uh, Johnstown Diocese. You also strike it that um, – how close did you feel with that issue, if I may ask?
1: I feel very close with that issue. I went to Catholic school for 12 years, so mm-hmm. I know people affected by that. I, mm-hmm. you know, belong, I'm no longer a practicing Catholic. That's a big part of it. Uh, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I know there are some great – there are some great work done by the Catholic Church, some great social justice issues and, yes. but this that the, what has happened to so many children just that cannot be erased, and the cover up has, uh, you know, I don't know how political we want to get here, but children have to come first, and yes. I think that's what whispers in the Alders is about too. Mm,
0: it's it's interesting because I am not Catholic. I went to a Catholic college, and there's okay. a couple of reasons for that. But um, and it's it's interesting because when I went in the '80s this was something that had not even been heard of. I certainly never heard anything of this sort from any of my, my peers or any, and, and I never encountered anything there. And it was, it was as shocking to me um, years later when it came out in Boston. And like, I lived in the Boston area, and I had very close friends who, were, who are Catholic. And I remember they, too, were, it was sort of, we knew, and some did know. Some had some, some direct experience. And and others were just sort of like, this was something we never wanted to talk about, and now we've got no choice. We've got to. As you said, the kids have to come first.
1: Yeah, and it, it's kind of amazing. Uh, growing up, being raised Catholic in a Catholic school, that was an unspoken truth that was always there. People knew about it. And it's it's mm. incredible that it stayed under the under
0: the surface for as long as it did. And mm-hmm. they
1: they did a very good job at that.
0: Well, it it now seems to become the question of what happens after, what what happens during this process, and uh, I think we're a long way off. If I'm afraid to say that before before there's any real resolution, I'm I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's still a long way off too. The, the uh, It's refreshing to see the legal system take a a very close look at this, and it's going to be interesting to see what – now, I know in the past the Catholic Church has moved problem priests out of the country, so it's going to be interesting to see if the Pope now will allow them to stand trial.
0: That is going to be a very interesting question. It also becomes a a very interesting thing that I thought of when I was reading the initial – I had to, as part of my job, read some of this – and. Um, The Altoona-Johnstown Diocese report in itself was, well, I guess you could say it was bad enough having to read that, and I'm sensitive about this issue, and whether you're Catholic or not, there's your your thing. Um, I remember reading that, and one of the things that stood out for me, and I think you touched on it in the book, maybe subtly, was that in decades past, the Catholic Church had a lot of power, And it could affect like city life and political life. And it was like you almost had to have like the local bishop or the local priest's um, approval. If you wanted to become chief of police, if you wanted to run for mayor, you you sort of touched on that a little bit because you you see that. Were you thinking on that terms of, of where, you know, like the the struggle that, that uh, the priest is having and the others.
1: I was because if, you know if you go back to the turn of the 20th century the catholic church was just starting to get some power but like in places like philadelphia uh all along the, the northeast it it was hard to be catholic you were attacked yeah. you know right. so the catholic church for its parishioners it was a safe haven so right. that, I, and i touched on that in the book that's how you have that it's almost like an inner circle and father pakenick is part of that but he keeps his his parish very close to him for that reason. Uh, so there's there's some historical base for that, and socially, of course, when many of the immigrants came here, what, what did they do? They went to their church. That's, and that still happens today when people come to this country. Thank goodness there are churches here to help people. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where yes. you stand in religion. The fact is, a lot of churches of any denomination, any faith, they do a lot to help people. And mm-hmm. regardless of my stand on religion and the Catholic Church, you just can't help but be grateful for these institutions that do the good works that they do do.
0: Yes, exactly. And um, one of the things as well, and um, I, I think I'm going to have to shift the gear a little bit on this one, uh, in terms of these different storylines and uh, one of the things that's always been fun for me in my writing is to try to weave the different storylines of the characters in and you do this in Whispers and the Alders really well you you weave these different lines in and it never gets too choppy you know it, it feels like there's a good smooth transition uh, through here and especially as well uh, the love story behind this with, with Aubrey and Tommy it wasn't a romance that I felt, but it's um I'm wondering how did you how did you approach that relationship? Was there anything that, that as you led into it of well how are we going to know these two? What what kind of attack did you take?
1: I wanted it to be a story that was almost like a memoir feel. I like, you know, Aubrey looking mm-hmm. back, telling the story. I'm sorry. My voice just went uh so i it's it's through her point of view basically, but there's there's a few parts of the story where that shifts away from her uh and I wanted to tell the story through the characters so and I didn't want to give away too much on each right away, so I used the action and the scenes and the dialogue to bring about to develop the characters. And I think that worked. it's no, it's not easy and it's, it has to be a very conscious decision. You have to you have to go back and look and it's a lot of uh, fact checking after the fact and going back mm-hmm. over the many details because over the course of three hundred pages it's it's a lot to track and you know, outlining
0: helped with that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that whispers right now Reflects your style as it is Is this a step forward from, from Earlier in your career do you think It's,
1: uh, it's probably you know, the, the best representation of my style uh, I, I like literary works I like, I like writing in the literary genre If I were to step outside into another genre I probably would maintain the literary feel To whatever I write I enjoy writing poetry too And I I think that those two feed off each other. They inspire. One inspires
0: the other. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with H.A. Callum. His debut for Brown Posey Books is Whispers in the Alders. And I wanted to ask uh, this question now, H.A., is... um, I'm often myself asked how long it takes to write a book or a novel, and, and I tell them the truth. I tell them it takes months, sometimes years, to let a story work in my head before I can even begin to write. Take us back through the process of Whispers and, and where this began, and, and how did you think it through?
1: The, uh, I came up, I remembered a stand of alder trees from my childhood, mm-hmm. and the catkins. And uh, I remember holding them, and it's like, wow, this is, you know, as a kid, just being in nature was one of my favorite places to go. And it's like, well, there has to be a story around this. So I've been, I was kicking the uh, the idea of the story around in my mind. And like I said, uh, before Tommy and Aubrey, it wasn't going to be a boy and girl. It was going to be two guys that were friends. And I came up with the idea, and I wrote the first chapter. And then it, it took off from there. Right after that first chapter is when I decided to go to make – Aubrey's character female and I knew it would, it would be difficult to capture not only the female voice but a, a teenage female voice but I'm, I'm pretty happy with what readers have said they they think I've I've gotten it down pretty good and, and that makes me happy as a writer knowing that I was able to mm-hmm. capture her voice as well as I did and you you don't know that until until people start reading it and then well, once I, I, once I had the premise please, yeah. Yeah. oh go ahead I'm sorry
0: no, no, I was just going to say, I, I think you did. I, it it awesome. sounded a very genuine voice.
1: Thank you. So then once I, you know, I, I looked at, I always enjoyed coming-of-age stories. I think they're some of the best stories out there. And I wanted to write something like that and with with the alder trees. And, you know, just like any of us, you look around, if you grow up in suburban America, you see these places like Quail Run, Pheasant Court, there hasn't been a pheasant around in years, but we still look back on these wild places that used to be in our backyard, right? Yes. And that's what I want the alder trees to be, that last wild place that, that we have in our midst that sometimes we just don't appreciate.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's there, too, again, harkens back to Pennsylvania now. Uh, from looking at your history, you are from Bucks County, but you've also lived in other parts of the country, and that certainly must have... Um, Fed into the imagination, it's sort of like it's it's grist for the mill, but it's also it's also like sort of like the building blocks, isn't
1: it? It is, it is. Uh, Travel is always great to uh to, to meet new people, get some new ideas. I've I've been very fortunate to see a very large part of this country, and you don't understand how large this country is until you just get in the car and drive it. It's it's just mm-hmm. incredible, and the and the people and the places. I lived out west for many years, and just Breathtaking scenery, the, the weather patterns. Mm-hmm. It, it's just when you move across this continent, it's just it's just so fascinating how the landscape and the weather change, and it, you just have to be grateful for that.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I also note that you you lived in the American West. What 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 parts of of the West did you live?
1: I lived in the great state of Montana. Oh wow! Not far from uh, Yellowstone National Park.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, and I have not been there. So, for those who have not, you know, you only see pictures or you see it on television. But it's like to be there is the thing, isn't it?
1: To be there is a thing, cause the thing because a picture never does it total justice. It's, uh, it's Glacier National Park. I think is one of the gems in our National Park Service. It's just, it's gorgeous, and there's so many other sites like that across the West. I've I've driven through much of the West, and and even here on the East Coast, uh, it's like I said, we had it's so amazing that we can set these places aside and just just cherish them and enjoy them.
0: Mm-hmm. They're inspirational. Well, it's hopeful that we can keep. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, I grew up in Vermont, so I had um, a lot to uh, to look at in just in a very small state comparatively. But uh, th- that was something. And I've spent most of I mean, I spent most of my life in New England, so. It was um, – and it's a place I still love to go back to for vacation or for whatever, but also to see my family. And it does the same thing for me. You go back and you look at it, and you remember things that you don't see quite so much of, I guess. Sure. And yeah. this is the time of year
1: to be go in ahead. New England, right?
0: Oh, oh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the leaves turning and um, and all of that. And uh, I only got to see a little bit of it uh, on my vacation recently, but uh, it it doesn't change. Uh, the the colors remain as vibrant and everything everything about the place. You know, the people may change, but I guess I guess you could say where we've been or where we came from. It it doesn't change completely, does it?
1: No, and I think when when we write, we take into account that places have character and they have history mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Humans are a part of that. But yeah, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, when when I write, I can, I can look at a place that can almost feel like another person in the room with me.
0: Oh. Well, let's talk about what really were your early inspirations. Like, what was your exposure like growing up uh, in terms of books, in terms of reading? What did you gravitate to?
1: I would pick up anything I could find. So I did mm-hmm. not come from a very literary family uh, mm-hmm. so but some some of my earliest books were of course any of the uh, any of the classics uh, the school library had a lot of old books so I would I would pick those up uh, I loved the Sherlock Holmes stories as a kid
0: mm-hmm.
1: I read Lord, Lord of the Flies when I was probably 10 To Kill a Mockingbird of course that's still my favorite to this day
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and you name it. And as I got older, that that uh, that expanded. Of course, uh, I love. Uh, Toni Morrison is still probably my favorite American author. And I was very lucky mm-hmm. in college to have a professor that was a founding member of the Toni Morrison Society. So it was it was great to have that perspective from from a, from a professor that that knew Toni Morrison and knew her works very well, and just to get that education on on how she wrote her books, and those are some of them. Mm-hmm. When when I write, you know, when I I look at you know people like Tony Morrison, it's like, man, I wish I could tell a story like that. Uh, it's just such yeah. a gift that she
0: has. There are certain and people that just have that ability. Right, like we sort of it's reach out. So and want to be that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, In in, in terms of just. And it's funny, too, because for me, my favorites tend to change. But uh, growing up, I was very fortunate to have been um, introduced to, to-, uh, to Tolkien when I was like nine or ten years old. I think that, that I did not realize the effect that would have on me until a few years later when I started to reread The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and start to understand mm. kind of where he was coming from. And suddenly uh, I was like, I'm in another world. And maybe that's part of what inspires me to write some of the things I do because I try to write realistically, but I'm not always that good at it. So it's like the imagination always kicks in and you have to have more fun with it, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, you do. And when you read stuff like Tolkien, you, you look at it and you're like, wow, this is fantasy, but it, it really applies so much to modern life too. Yes. You can read into it. So You can read so deep into those stories.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually, this is one thing I, I wanted to ask because when I was in school, I was in high school and later in college, I was put in that same situation of occasionally being assigned books that I kind of looked at and thought, "Oh, are you kidding?" <laughs> but then, <laughs> um, it, you know, and then you read like, you know, you know, you read a fellow I've read a Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, and and that changed my opinion immediately. Uh, that story, and the, the I never got the stereotypical jokes told about him in terms of you know the road went on for about a mile and a half, and then to the left, this happened or something. There was a real story there there was a really that was a stunning story when you 're only like fourteen or fifteen, and you read that, and suddenly the door opens to another avenue of style and uh, and ability and right yeah. when you 're that and you, you get hit that young, you get hit with it. <laughs> Yeah, and
1: uh, you know, I was I was just lucky to pick up the books that I did and I I just loved reading from a very very early age, so it was I, I'm sure I was reading ahead of my my age bracket. But I, mm-hmm. I I mean, books teach us things that sometimes we don't learn from other people or that other people just can't teach us or fail to teach us. So and it's it's a safe place, I feel. Yes. And it it opens up minds, too
0: hmm When did you have a moment that said to you, all right, I'm going to do my own. I, I can do this. When, when do you think that occurred? I, I think it
1: occurred a long time ago, but uh, life happens, and I, I put off writing. I, I started writing many years ago, but I just I got away mm-hmm. from it, and just picking up books and reading. I, I've always read books, so I just – came to the point when I started whispers in the Auditors. I was like yeah, I can do this I have to do this mm-hmm. and you know the love for it came back and it's 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 yeah you know, it's who I am I'm I'm always going to be a writer and and a reader and yes. you know you read these books you know, and if you can say I can do that that's when you know you just have to do it
0: Mm-hmm. Now, did whispers come about years in, in your past? Was it an idea that you had some time ago, but maybe didn't pick it up, or was it a? Did you have an idea, then put it aside for whatever reason, and then come back?
1: I think the idea has been there for 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 a while. Like I said, I, I really enjoy the the coming of age stories, and I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know it was simmering back there, and it needed to get out, and it came out when it was ready.
0: Mm-hmm. And you had talked about uh, writing poetry as well. Was that the first? Was that your initial foray into writing, or was the story the same?
1: No, poetry was my my initial foray into writing, and mm-hmm. I, I love writing poetry. And I think it it makes me a stronger prose writer too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: poetry was my my first my first love of the literary word.
0: Was there any specific poet, or was there a style that, that, that you liked?
1: I don't remember so much when I was younger. I would, of course, pick up the books by you know, just the poetry collections in the library. And as mm-hmm. I got into my teen years, I really enjoyed uh, reading Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet. Mm-hmm. And today i like to read uh, Major Jackson. He's, he's a good – he's from Philly. He teaches up in Vermont now. He's a great poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hala Alan She's she's a really good poet. I read her her novel Salt Houses last year. That was a great novel. But I, mm-hmm. I read most of the contemporary poets, but I just pick up the literary magazines and and just see what people are writing now because poetry is always changing. Just just like just like fiction.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is the thing about. Uh, it, 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 kind of a story that's happened before now and again. You were telling me before we went on the air that, um, that Whispers and the Alders was originally on a different imprint, and the, a, the publisher went out of business. Am I right?
1: Yeah, you're right. It initially came out in May of 2017, and the publisher mm-hmm. went out of business several months later. And then so the book was without a home until Sunbury Press uh, picked it up, the publisher, loved it, and, and here we are. I'm very yes, grateful indeed. for that. Most books don't get second chances.
0: Well, that's the thing. Uh, sometimes they just, it, they just disappear, but you were fortunate to keep your rights and uh, to be able to move it. Um, in terms of getting signed, that is another thing that I'm often asked about is how did you do it or how did you get there? And I had a fortunate situation of, of self publishing my first book parasite girls and then just meeting the right person who opened the door for me so there was a bit of luck there but how about you in terms of in terms of getting signed how difficult was it to find that first publisher what uh, what kind of uh, avenues did you take it it wasn't
1: you know it it was it was hard i i queried for a long time and when i initially wrote it i I didn't know if it would get published. I didn't write it to get it published. I just wrote it to write it because I just wanted to mm-hmm. write the story. And then when I finished mm-hmm. it, I realized I had something and some people that looked at a few of the chapters said you should submit this. So, mm-hmm. so I did. The uh the Twitter pitch parties were great. Uh it's a great way to meet agents and 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 publishers and that that's how I met my first publisher. Tell and me
0: And then a when little they went out the pitch I don't mean to interrupt. Tell me about the pitch no, party a little bit. Uh, the pit. What is a Twitter pitch party? Because I mean, I'm on Twitter, but what did the what was the pitch party like, and how did it work? What it
1: is, you 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 put like a, sh- a short blurb about your book out there. Then you you put the appropriate hashtag with the with the age level, with the genre, and with the the hashtag mm-hmm. for the the pitch party. There's 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 several of them. Mm-hmm. There's like pit mad, pitch madness. There's a bunch of them. And if one of the agents clicks like on on your tweet, that's an invitation to to query them.
0: Oh, so this is interesting because I do promote some things on Twitter, and I, I have some some friends who definitely do. But that was that is I have learned something new. I appreciate that. But yeah, yeah. Um, then there's that and. Um, In terms of feedback, another thing that's been very hard uh, from agents or, you know, prospective agents or publishers is to get feedback. Did you get any initial feedback while you were in the process of finding the publisher? Did anyone take the time to tell you what they thought of whispers or they thought you might need work, that kind of thing?
1: I did, and whenever an agent would take the time to do that, I would, you know, I would really consider what they said and, and incorporate those into my edits. And I publishing is not an easy business and it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: querying is not is not easy either but what i think a lot of writers fail to recognize is that these agents have a lot of work and they are getting mm-hmm. hundreds if not thousands of these a week so you can you can't expect a personalized response all the time and you can't take it personally and you can't get angry yes, if sure, they don't sure.
0: That is very true. There's uh, there's a lot of do's and don'ts and a lot of etiquette involved, and there's a lot of professionalism that that right. many writers perhaps don't understand until they've they've had that first um, encounter. And um, sometimes, you know, it is true. I mean, I, I forget the figure. I believe it was that that larger agents get thousands of queries or pitch ideas. In a year, and they may only have the time or the resource to take maybe one or two new clients a year.
1: Right, and if, and if you if you figure each query, let's say, has at least ten sample pages. Yep, that adds up.
0: Yeah you know, well, if you can that is, if you can get somebody to even say to you, "I want X number of pages," and uh, you you feel like you know, for me, it was like when on a couple of attempts. When somebody got back to me and said, I want to see the first 50 pages, I'm like, oh, wow. And you just hope that those 50 are, are as much of a grab as the initial, as the initial idea. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that, and that's a challenge. But at the same time, you don't want to go and make that first 50 shine and forget about the rest of it.
0: Precisely. So, what well,
1: I, for certain – yeah, go ahead. If I could just say for writers out there, when you query, if you get a no, it doesn't mean they forget mm-hmm. you either. If you're professional and if you make a, a great query, even if it's a, a decline, they'll remember a good query and they'll remember your name if you query them again on another project. So I, part of the query process is building those relationships. So writers need to keep that in mind, especially on social media.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the thing of um, is to establish the relationship, but also then the query letter, for some of us, that's almost like, I liken it to, to writing a job interview letter or to write that, that letter that you have to write. And that can be daunting. That can be even a little frightening.
1: Yeah, query letters are very daunting. They're, they are the exact opposite almost of the creative writing process. Uh, so when you, when you mm-hmm. do your first one, and then I did a few, and then I looked at some, some samples a friend had sent me. It's like, well, this this is boring. <laughs> and then she said, Well, you know what, this that's what they want to say, you just gotta lay it out there. A, B, C, D. And I did and I started getting results, so you know, I I'm very happy when other writers reach out for help I'll I'll give them suggestions on their query letters and you know, it's I like to work with other writers. But it's a very technical aspect of of the writing, of the writing life, of getting your work out
0: there and getting it noticed. Exactly. Well, you've certainly gotten off to a pretty decent start with whispers. Um, We noticed that, uh, well, first of all, you already topped the Brown Posey Press charts immediately, and sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, also – we were talking a little bit before we went on about Goodreads and about um, all of the, you know, the different uh, social media sites for, re- uh, for readers now. Uh, BookBub is probably another one. Um, it looks like you, you landed uh, the attention of some people who are pretty serious readers, and it's uh, this one here. Um, I don't know if, if that is the correct pronunciation of this person's name, Aria, uh, for reader's favorite wrote a fantastic thing uh for you and that must just make you feel incredible.
1: Yeah, it's always good to get that that recognition from from someone that's a professional reader and and from from readers too. The uh yeah, you know, when you get a review from someone it's you know, it's it's gratifying to have your work you know, respected like that. And it's also great to get the feedback. I enjoy the critical reviews as well as, as the "I love your book" reviews. That they, they all mm-hmm. help. You know, a, a review does two things: it boosts your confidence and it boosts your writing. And that's what the critical mm-hmm. reviews do. I, I don't, I don't mind a, a four-star review. That those don't bother mm-hmm. me because they're genuine. And that's that's all you can ask for as a writer
0: and that's that's what you hope for too when you see when you see reviews and um the another thing that we can tell the reader or the prospective writer especially is that just because somebody docked you a star or two does not mean you are a bad writer
1: right it no it does not mean and some of the and a good reviewer will will let let the author know that you know maybe it's not in their genre it's not The writing may be technical technically fine and sound, but it may just not be the style of book they enjoy reading. And a good reviewer will do that. And a good reviewer won't pass won't post a bad review if it's if it's something that's more on the personal lines like that. Right. And I've built some great relationships with reviewers. So that they are Oh good. Writers need to take them into consideration. They read a lot of books and they do it for no money. So remember that.
0: Very true. Well, um, I guess the next thing to ask for you is is what is next. Um, I understand you're going to have you're going to do the same thing we all do. You're going to get out and do uh, some of the book signings and events like that. Where can people find you?
1: Well, I was at the Bucks County Book Fest a couple of weeks ago in Doylestown. That was that was amazing. Uh, November 10th, I will be appearing at the the Doylestown branch of the Bucks County Free Library for a signing. They're doing a local author event, and then again on November 17th, and these are both from 1 to 3 in the afternoon. They're both Saturdays. On the 17th, I'll be at the Quakertown branch of the Bucks County Free Library for another local author event and book signing. And, Excellent. you know, hopefully more will be signed up soon.
0: Now, you also have a uh, website here, hakellum.com, if I am looking at it correct. Um, uh what, I, I took a quick look at your at your site, but uh for those who want to find out more about you, that's a good place to go, I would assume. That's a that yeah, that's a great place to go and from there you can you can
1: find me also on social media. Uh I always respond to requests. So if, if people, you know, contact me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, uh um I usually get back to people right away. And if you if you stop on the website, you see something you like, leave a comment, I'll I'll reply to your comment too. I love getting to meet readers.
0: All right, very good. Well, we have been speaking with H.A. Callum. He is the author of Whispers in the Alders here on Brown Posey Press. Uh, Thank you for your time, H.A. I really appreciate it. Tori,
1: thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate this. This was a great time.
0: All right, thank you. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the books Live from the Cafe and A Moment in the Sun and coming later this fall, searching for Roy Buchanan.